we are beginning our celebration of the season of Lent, which is generally a, a celebration of repentance, of finding ways to see deeper into our own dependency, our own need, our own sinfulness in preparation for the celebration of Easter and the resurrection. And as we do that, we're embarking on a study of the seven deadly sins. And this morning, uh, we're talking about anger. So hopefully that will get your attention and get you awake, get your blood flowing a little bit. Let me pray for our time together. Father, as we embark on this new series, it requires a great deal of introspection. It requires a great deal of honesty. It requires us to look at things that we perhaps don't want to see, to acknowledge things that we want to hide from. Father, give us courage. Give us energy. Give us diligence as we seek to unearth some of the things that stand in the way of our loving you and loving our neighbor and serving our world. And Lord, let us not stop there. Let us not be content just to see our sin, but to cling to Jesus more fully, to grow more dependent upon him and his work and what he has done on our behalf. Let us then see the gospel. Let us see that our sin can be erased and done away with forever and that we can rest in Jesus for all eternity. Let us believe that more fully as we look at the sins that inhabit all of our hearts, and particularly this morning as we look at anger and wrath. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1976, uh, Sidney Lumet directed the film Network, which won four Academy Awards and also produced one of the most famous lines in movie history. And it's part of this long dialogue, or this long monologue, I should say, of this aged newscaster, this newsman, Howard Beale. And he's about to lose his job. And somehow this impending personal loss is connected to everything nefarious that's going on in American society at that time, of which there was a lot. And so he begins this monologue in front of the camera behind the desk, but he's a little bit disheveled, he's a little bit sweaty, something's going on. And he says, I don't have to tell you things are bad. And if you've seen this, I'm not going to act it out, so prepare to be <laughs> underwhelmed. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street, and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. And he goes on to talk about the Russians, because the Russians represented everything that was negative in American society at that time, and the oil crisis. And he says, I know is that the first thing that you've got to do is to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. My life has value. So I want you to get up now. I want you to go to your window. I want you to get up out of your chairs right now, open your window, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. He doesn't stop there, but he goes on to continue ranting. He gets up from behind the desk and walks over and the, the news director is trying to tell the, guy, the cameraman to follow him because this is this amazing moment. We've got to capture it. Well, what's wrong in Howard Beale's mind is that people aren't angry enough, that anger 
that wrath is a solution to his problems and to the problems in America. Being mad itself is a solution. And don't we often believe this very same thing? The anger that we're talking about as one of the seven deadly sins in Hebrews, and then we're going to look at the corresponding passage in Genesis that uh, the writer of Hebrews alludes to. The anger here is not primarily what we regard as flying off the handle. It's not a flash-in-the-pan, lightning-strike type of anger, but it's this steady undercurrent, this smoldering cynicism, this slow burn of feeling wronged and hungering for the offender to get their due, hungering for the person or this other ideology or this other team or the man to get their due. And we seethe with a slow-burning anger. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Whether or not it ever erupts into this combustible type of flying-off-the-handle rage, we all have places in our lives of anger and bitterness and wrath. And maybe we don't want to go there, but this morning we are. So Hebrews alludes to the story of Esau, which we looked at last year, the story of Jacob and Esau, actually. And the writer of Hebrews, he's writing to these Jewish, primarily Jewish readers, and he references this story that is very central to their identity as people. And it's this very famous story, and it's saturated with anger and its consequences. If you remember, there were two twins born to Rebekah and Isaac. Two twins were Jacob and Esau. And in the ancient world, the firstborn is the one who gets the estate. If you have only two sons, the first one gets everything. They get the title, they get the name, they get the estate, they get the, the wealth, they get the farm. They are the ones that are thought to carry down the family name. And in this particular instance, they're the ones that are carrying down the promises of God. That the promises of God to bring a redeemer, to bring a Messiah, now comes through this family, through Isaac and Rebekah and their offspring, and it's meant to go, culturally speaking, and in Isaac's mind, it has to go to Esau because he's the firstborn. But Rebekah, the mother, receives this prophecy from God, and it says that the elder will serve the younger, that God is going to disrupt convention, that he's going to disrupt Isaac's wishes, and Jacob is going to be the one who is treated as the firstborn. He gets the estate. He gets the name. The Messiah comes out of his line, not Esau. But you see, Isaac doesn't like this plan because not only does it upset hundreds or maybe thousands of years of convention in this world, but he favors Esau. He loves Esau more than he loves Jacob. And you see that he begins to ignore this clear statement from God through his wife, he ignores the word of God. And you see, as such, a family unravel into internecine warfare that follows into the next generation. Esau grows up to be an impulsive, hot-tempered, angry man. But as the eldest, he's slated to get the blessing. And so his mom, who favors Jacob, hatches a plan. And he sends Jacob into this elderly, blind Isaac in disguise. And Isaac blesses him and without knowing it confirms God's will. And then Esau comes in thinking he's about to get the blessing. 
and he discovers that Jacob has stolen it. And he learns what's happened, and he bursts out with a loud and bitter cry. He's seized with bitterness at Jacob. And ominously, the writer of Genesis says that he consoled himself with thoughts of killing Jacob. He comforted himself with thoughts of killing Jacob. This is the bitter root that Hebrews is talking about, this seething bitterness that at once is both comforting and also inflames our anger and our wrath. You see, when we're, when we're wronged, when we receive an injustice, we console ourselves with thoughts of that person's comeuppance. We console ourselves with thoughts of that person getting their due. And it comforts us. It makes us feel better, but it also throws gas on the fire and makes it much, much worse and drives us inward and drives us mad. What made Esau angry? He was furious with Jacob because Jacob threatened something that Esau valued very deeply. He couldn't imagine life without his father's blessing. He couldn't imagine life without his father's estate. He staked his life on this firstborn status, and nothing was going to stand in his way of getting it. And he was willing to kill his brother in order to acquire what his heart desired. And you see here anger revealing his inner motivation. Anger revealing his true love. Anger revealing his ultimate values. And this is where it gets uncomfortable for us, friends, because anger is a diagnostic tool for our very real spiritual commitments. Anger is a diagnostic tool of what we really love. It's a diagnostic tool of our functional gods that we serve. Because anger gets aroused when something that we value, some, someone that we love, is threatened. And this is why anger is not always a sin. Anger in the abstract is not evil. Anger has to have a context. And anger can actually motivate us to protect someone who's in danger, to protect, protect a child, to protect our spouse. We become angry when something threatens them. If we love justice, we love truth, we love fairness, we'll get angry when someone who is weak is picked on by the strong. You see, anger identifies our loves, and when we get angry at injustice, it shows us that we love justice. And so anger in the abstract is not evil in and of itself. It has to have a context. In fact, as we saw in Ephesians 4 last year as well, that it commands us to be angry and yet not sin. The context, the motivation, what's behind the anger is what's most important. In fact, if we never get angry, then something's really wrong. It shows us that we, we love nothing except the status quo. So anger is a human emotion. is isn't itself evil, but it's a, a diagnostic tool. It diagnoses our loves, and that's where it gets uncomfortable. That's where it gets embarrassing when we fly off the handle about our reputation, when we fly off the handle about something that threatens our bank account, we see that we've attached far too much value to our reputation, to our bank account. And when we get angry about that, it should embarrass us. Esau loved money. He loved his belly. He loved his standing as number one. And he was enraged at Jacob because Jacob threatened his access to those things. Just as a child gets enraged when another child tries to take their toy 
tries to take their ice cream, tries to take something valuable to them, they fly off the handle, they throw a tantrum. So what throws you into tantrums, literally or metaphorically? What angry thoughts console you and comfort you and yet continue to drive you inward and drive you mad? Is it the strong trampling the weak? Is it injustice around our world? Do you pick up the paper? Now we're going back to 76 again. Do you read the Internet and the news reports and read of inequities and poverty? Do you get angry at those things, or do you get angry when your plans for your day off go astray, when someone steps in and takes what you feel is yours and that you own and is good for you? We need to see the way that Esau and Isaac respond to this challenge. They're both encountering something that they can't control. They're both encountering something that threatens their idea of what is good for them and, what the, way, and the way that life should go. But they respond differently, and we need to see this. Esau wanted to receive the blessing, and all of that entailed, and his plans were foiled. But Isaac, too, had this very, very specific idea of what was going to happen as he was approaching death. And he says, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, and he tells Esau to go out into the field to find an animal, to kill it, and to make him this beautiful, sumptuous meal. You see, this is a very ceremonial thing. It's a big event in the Isaac household. And so he instructs Esau to go out and do this. Meanwhile, Jacob comes in. He says, go out in the open country and hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. You see, he was very intent on life going a very certain way. He was approaching death and had this one last thing that he could do in order to finalize his life and to leave a legacy. And it doesn't happen. We see two men intent on securing their heart's loves, their affections that are both thwarted, but they respond differently. When Esau realizes Jacob has stolen his birthright, he weeps loudly, he cries out with bitterness, he vows to kill Jacob, he consoles himself with thoughts of Jacob's downfall. His anger owns him, his anger controls him. Isaac, however, Isaac trembled. This word that is used for, for tremble, it is used to show terror, and it's used in Exodus, the next book in the Torah, thought to be written or at least edited by the same person or group of people that put together Genesis. And it gives us a sense of what happened with Isaac, what it meant that he trembled. In Exodus, God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai and he says, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. By my power, you are safe. The Egyptians wanted to slave you for all eternity, but I set you free. And now you're safe. My plan stands. And the writer tells us in Exodus 19, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke before, because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like, like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. 
They realized that they were in the presence of God, and so they trembled. Isaac realized in that moment, even though his heart's desires were being taken away from him, he realized in that moment that he was encountering God's presence. And everything becomes clear to him. His dream of properly closing out his life and bestowing this blessing upon Esau is shattered. He realizes that he's not the master of his house. He's not in control of his life. But notice he doesn't try to overturn his actions. He doesn't try to reverse the blessing that he gave to Jacob. That would be very unusual if, if not never occurring. But couldn't he have cried foul? Couldn't he have said, look, I was tricked. I'm an old man. He smelled like Esau. He felt like Esau. He talked like Esau. I was fooled. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't seek to give Esau a half or a quarter. He says, sorry, this is the way things are. He rests from his running from God. He had his plans. He had his desires. They were different from God's. He had pursued them, and he finally rests. He trembles because he's in the presence of God. He realizes that even in his years of disobedience and ignoring God's will, that God has still been faithful to his household, that God's blessing has never left his household, that God's grace has been resting upon Isaac and his family nonetheless. God has been faithful to his promises. And so he meets with Jacob a second time. And instead of saying, you know, I'm sorry you tricked me, that was a really terrible thing, I'm going to take my blessing back, he says, no, may God's promises descend through you. But Esau, Esau doesn't tremble. He gets mad. And in the world that he's built inside his heart, God's grace doesn't work like that. You have to go out and grab your future. You have to go out and acquire the blessing. And this incredibly sad postscript, we hear or we read Esau of overhearing this conversation that Isaac has had with Jacob and is reconfirming his blessing to him. And it says, now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, which Esau had done. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath in addition to the wives he already had. You see, he's still trying to secure his father's blessing, his father's approval. He sees this approval given to Jacob in the form that Jacob has obeyed and gone to marry Israelite women. And he says, now I know. Now I see what my father was really after. Now I know how to behave. I know how to order my life. I know how to control my life. And so he still misunderstands the whole scenario. He still misunderstands that you don't get the blessing by doing the right thing or working so that someone will notice. And in fact, this root of bitterness that's grown up in Esau's life is now so overwhelming and so much a part of who he is that his father's blessing wouldn't heal him or help him anyway. His father's approval wouldn't give him the happiness that he really wanted. What we need to consider is how many Esau's are listening this morning. (laughs) Are we 
like Esau. We tend to think of anger primarily in terms of uncontrolled outburst as yelling. But what the writer of Hebrews is addressing, again, is this undercurrent of cynicism, of, of entitlement, of wrath. And whether or not it overflows its banks in a visible way, in a verbal way, it's still ruling our lives if we don't deal with it, if we don't uproot it. In fact, this seething rage, if it's obscured and hidden by politeness and niceness, that's probably the most destructive kind of rage. Hebrews uses this image here of a root of bitterness. Why, why a root? Well, there's a number of reasons, but one of which is because you can't see the root. A root is, in, is invisible. And many of us, because we've been told anger is wrong, maybe we've grown up in Christian communities where being a Christian is about putting on a good face, being nice, being polite, and therefore we stuff our anger. We bottle it up. We enclose it in politeness and in niceness. We think it's invisible. It's not to other people, but it's invisible to us. We've hidden it. Or we're embarrassed by our anger, and so we bottle it up. We're embarrassed to let people see us out of control, and so we stuff it down. But this root of bitterness, this cynicism, is right there under the surface. And even if we pretend it doesn't exist because we don't have outbursts, because we don't have fits, because we don't throw tantrums, it doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't mean it's not ruling us. Don't you see, in order to deal with anger, we first have to identify what kind of root it is. But you don't have to see a root to identify it because a root bears fruit. A root flowers. A root becomes a tree. And so the root may be invisible in and of itself, but you still see it. You see its effects. And we blame circumstances or the other person or the system or the man but really, those were just the right conditions to cause that root to grow up into anger. You see, our life, those circumstances, those relationships are the soil and the water and the sun that causes the root to grow and grow and take over our lives if we don't deal with it. We've become controlled by anger even if we carefully prevent embarrassing outbursts. So, I've set up the situation, what we need to deal with, what anger really is. But how do we begin to uproot it? How do we take this root of bitterness and deal with it? How do we pull it out of our hearts? Well, Hebrews tells us in verse 15, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. many. You see, grace is kryptonite to anger. Grace is kryptonite to wrath. You see, both work at the root level, not at the behavioral level, and we tend to focus upon the behavioral level. Stop being angry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really focus, and I'm not going to get angry at this person. And then we find ourselves thinking about it incessantly. We're dealing with it at a behavioral level, not at the root level. And that's where grace works. You can't just pretend not to be angry. That's pathological, and it'll drive you mad. Grace and bitterness, grace and wrath are like fire and water. They can't coexist together. If there's more fire than the water vaporizes, 
If there's more water, then the fire is extinguished. And grace, friends, is a bucket of cold water on anger because it says to you, though you've messed up your life, though you've tried to control your life, though you've run from God, that he pursues you not with anger but with grace, with mercy, with forgiveness. It's a bucket of cold water on anger. And so to Isaac, he says, I don't come to you with burning anger, with fire, but with the water of grace. Isaac finally gets it, and he trembles. And that becomes his change agent. His trembling before God is not a fear of now God is going to get me. He's going to burn me alive. It's a trembling that God is still in love with him. And God is still present, and God's promises still stand. You see, God spends his anger on evil itself, not on us as evildoers. God sends his son not to punish the evildoer, but to take on his evil, her evil, and deal with it. You see, Jesus comes not to extract payment, not to extract payment for a debt, but he takes the debt on himself. He makes the payment himself. And that's how forgiveness works. Someone has to pay for the injustice. Someone has to pay for the wrong. You see that in your own life. And this is why we console ourselves with thoughts of the other person making payment because there's a real debt that has to be paid. It has to be paid down. Someone's going to pay it. Either you make the other person pay it literally, physically, somehow, or you just make them pay it over and over and over in your brain, in your mind. Or you choose to pay it. You take on the debt. And that's what Jesus does. Instead of making you pay it, making me pay it, he says, I will pay it. I will swallow up all of your evil in my death and in my resurrection. The more we say, and this is the sad truth, and this is why St. Augustine said, sin is its own punishment. We'll be talking about that concept as we go through the seven deadly sins, that sin is its own punishment. Because in this case, as it regards anger, the more we say, you owe me, the more we say, you will pay for this, the more we console ourselves with thoughts about that other person's downfall, the poorer we get. The more we say, I will take this debt from you and I will put it inside me, the poorer we get, not the richer. But what the gospel says is that though we have wronged God, though we've been unfaithful, instead of choosing to make us pay, which would be his right, he created us, he gave us commands, he said, follow these, stay in love with me, this is a reciprocal relationship, you decided not to, and so therefore, as God, I have the right for you to work that debt off, but he doesn't do that. He says, I will choose to absorb the debt. And he sends Jesus to take on the debt, to make us whole, to forgive us. And on the cross, therefore, Jesus says, it is finished. This economic term, it's done. Your debt is paid forever. You don't have to work for me. Jesus says, I don't treat you like a servant. I treat you like a friend. You're now my brother and sister because you're clean, you're righteous, you're justified. He doesn't look at you with anger, but he looks at the evil with anger. Because why? Because it's bubbling up inside of someone that he loves. 
and wants to eradicate it because it's driving us mad. Insofar as that becomes our taproot, insofar as that becomes the reality of our lives, that becomes the center, that becomes our summary insight about who God is and who we are, insofar as that seeps into our DNA, we can forgive. We can let go of anger. We can let go of wrath. We can actually become whole and healed and human again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a difficult concept. We don't like to think of ourselves as angry people, but as happy people, satisfied people. We want to be seen as someone who rolls with the punches, who doesn't hold grudges, but in fact, all of us wrestle with this. Lord, I pray that and as we see that you don't hold a grudge towards us, that you don't grit your teeth towards us, but that you smile towards us, that you love us, not because of what we have done to earn your favor, not because of all of the great things that maybe we'll do one day, but just because it is in your nature to love. It is in your nature to sacrifice on our behalf. And I pray that we would see that more and more clearly as we go through this series and as we now confess our faith and as we come to the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.